You're listening to Not Good Enough, an inadequate response to inadequate responses. My name is Mitch Alexander. I'm Tom McLean. I'm Tom Lang. And I'm Evie. And despite the fact that I said we are always, always right, we do have some corrections uh, to make this week to start with. Oh, sorry. And Isaac is here. Um... In, the, in behind the scenes, producer Isaac is giving us corrections <laughs> as we go. <laughs> Sometimes we don't see them. We get caught in a riff and we just sort of float out into rhetoric land and uh, we're caught behind the breakers of facts and figures and we can't see them. But don't know what any of that means. Um, yeah, this one's not even a factual correction, really. It's more of a moral correction, but it's important <laughs> that we maintain the high ground at all times on this podcast. Yeah, I'd say that this is less a correction about like, oh, we got something wrong. It's more like... For the context for everyone listening, we should be more right than we were last week. It's important that we're as right as we are funny. (laughs) (laughs) We're always right, but we could stand to be more right. (laughs) What what did we get less right than we could have? Last episode, we said that people who ended the quarantine period richer than they started should be shunned and spat on. And (laughs) that's right. But it could be more right. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, I'll make a fucking point eventually, I guarantee. So, um, yeah, we here at Not Good Enough maintain that pandemic profiteers are despicable scum, but some people did make money off the pandemic in a way that is good. And that is recipients of, like, JobKeeper and the people who have got, like, new start bonus uh, oh, right. Doubled, that sort of thing. Like, people who were really just, like, getting fucked <laughs> all the time, and the government's like, all right, pandemic's on, I guess we're going to make it so that some poor people can afford their groceries this week. And so, I, I'm just, I'm really just, like, wary that there's, like, some poor people who listened to last episode, and we were like, hey, if you ended up with more money at the end of pandemic than at the start, fuck you, go to hell. And they're like, oh, man. I started out with $10 and I ended it with, you know, 40 Like, you're okay. You're okay. <laughs> I, don't, no, I don't think that It's literally counts. anyone who is profiteering for the purposes of making other people poor. <laughs> I, know, I know what it is. If you ended up with more capital than yeah. you did at the start of yeah. the pandemic, that then you should get spat on. If you've got more liquid wealth... I think it's just a matter of scale. I think it's like if you've ended up with more money, so now you're like above the poverty line... That's fine. If you were already like friggin' a million stories above the poverty line and now you're a billion stories above the poverty line, that's not fine. See, I'm going to just show that I know theory here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Everybody, get ready. (laughs) Get ready, guys. Buckle uh, buckle up, guys. Okay. Um, (laughs) Buckle up, fuck waffles. We're talking theory. (laughs) (laughs) Like, okay, it's literally just the means of production. That's it. If you've got the means, <laughs> if you if you have the means of production, you're profiting. Then fuck you. But <laughs> oh yeah, if you if you ended the pandemic with more means than you started. <laughs> Look, you I go. still I love it. I love it. I mean, that still doesn't apply to like shareholders and stuff. But anyway, yeah, moving on. You get the <laughs> shareholders own means. That's the point. Um, and then uh, another follow up one. Uh, that I can edit out if I want, okay, um, <laughs> is just pointing out that it's very plausible that some of the rich deviants uh, want to get spat on and uh, just want to say that it's the stance is not good enough, that if you're aware that somebody likes being spat on uh, and they're a pandemic profiteer, don't spit on them and mm. just <laughs> kick them or defraud them or whatever. And, and, you know, just like <laughs> whatever works. Yeah. Just no, no pleasantness for them. We're, we're, we're a no-king-shaming podcast. Yeah, 
metaphorically spit at them. You pedants. <laughs> I, do, I do like the idea that there are CEOs out there that we just can't punish the way we want just because they're little hoglets for like BDSM slavery style stuff. Like, you know, that's how yeah. they let off steam is that they're so rich and they're so powerful in their day-to-day life that they can just afford like just the most extreme dom play. And it's just, and they come out to the public. It's like, yeah, fuck you and being spat on and stuff. And they're like, mm. oh no, stop it. <laughs> I don't want the ire of the public on me. Ooh. All their pleasure receptors get so burned out after. After a while, yeah. that's just how it works. I they think the only answer there is to, to stop alive. them being. <laughs> Jerry yeah, Harvey just wants to feel something. Stuart Robert at home, just like, oh no, don't call me an idiot on the podcast. <laughs> oh, that's the last thing I want. Damn it, he's bloody got us again. Don't drag me in front of the high court. Oh no. <laughs> oh, did I fail to pay workers again? Oh, I hope I don't get a fine. <laughs> This podcast, this is a secret, was actually commissioned by Stuart Robert as part of his humiliation fetish. <laughs> That's why we don't have a Patreon. We, we got the income coming from the big man himself. Yeah. Oh my god. We are we are loose this episode. This is loose. I haven't spoken to another person all week. <laughs> Something I wanted to talk about for the last little while, but it is an evergreen topic. So this was um, relevant during the bushfires. It's going to be relevant in six months time. It's just the way Morrison comports himself. It's it's less about, I mean, this is a, I think it's still a relevant thing to talk about, but it's it's less the policies of a Morrison government and more the rhetoric and more the, just the way he holds himself as a, as a man. It is... It's embarrassing and it is childish and I don't know how anyone affords him respect. Mm. Like the just the, and he and it's and it's filtering out to a lot of different um uh like members of parliament at all levels both the state and federal as well. But it's just this like the the weird smirk and the upside down smile that it's not a frown. He's definitely smiling just the wrong way and I don't know how anyone looks at that and they're like, oh, that's power. That's worthy of respect. He reminds me of like an extended version of what Abbott used to be like because I think Abbott was like- But Abbott was a jock. Yeah, we've had quite a few bad prime ministers in the last decade or two who have been increasingly worse in like their sort of weird personal mannerisms and stuff. But Tony Abbott was like a turning point. Like he's a jock, but he still does something not quite right that's going on there. Mm. And yeah, and like Morrison is like the extension of that, except he has no sort of personal attributes or like pastimes or anything that might endear him to literally anyone, even his base. So he just like whenever he smiles or talks and stuff like that, there's like always this lack of sincerity because he doesn't, yeah, it's just- he Fundamentally deeply- doesn't value interacting with other people. Yes, exactly. That's it. That's he's, he's got the up, down, upside down smile is more of just like a grimace of contempt that yeah. he just has to put on when he's talking with mm-hmm. someone well, that he perceives as weaker than him, which yeah. is everyone. I have a I have a theory about that, which I'll get to at the end of presenting all my evidence. But I do have a, I have a theory on that type of that that idea of he doesn't know how to interact with people. But Lang, what do you want to? Oh, I was just going to say I think that sort of echelon of power mongers, none of them. I don't think particularly like each other as people. They all just are in the same little gang out of uh, mutual convenience. Oh, you own this industry. I own this industry. I've got connections to that. Let's hang out and make ourselves all richer, even though I fucking hate you. Yeah. And yeah. they'd all stab each other in the back in a second if it helps them get anywhere. It also makes me think of like how um, when we think of like bad people, 
like serial killers or anyone like that, like who can get their way and commit like heinous crimes. You think of people who have at least some degree of charisma who can get their way into <laughs> doing things. And he is just a vacuum. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, you can tell someone isn't like either charismatic or like um self-assured uh, if they talk in the catchphrases that Morrison does. I've got a collection of some of my um favorite ones here. The way he talks to the Australian public is just it is infuriating to me both in like the the, the syntax as well as the substance. Um one of the ones this fucking like Pete Buttigieg style phrase where he said last week, we cannot allow our fear of going backwards from stopping us from going forwards. Uh. Which means nothing. It means nothing. Yeah. It means much, nothing. It's Mad Libs. It's you fill in what you think that means um, and we can all agree that it's smart. Yeah, the idea the idea was we are worried about a resurgence, in, a spike in COVID cases, but we need to reopen the economy. So instead of saying that, he says this 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 rhetoric technique. McLean, do you remember the name of the technique where you just you say things that are related in form to make it sound like you are saying something profound when you're not? Pete Buttigieg oh, in America did it like all the time. Floating something. Yeah, that's right. It's this. It's this. It's just a way of like tying connections together that aren't there so you know we know our fear of going backwards stop us from going forwards forwards and backwards are modes of direction of travel <laughs> well, it's that but it's also you're not saying anything of substance so you can't be called up on it no one can say exactly. well actually that's inaccurate because you didn't say anything exactly this this other point that he's got here is uh, we need to restart the economy we can't keep australia under the doona oh, oh, i fucking hate this oh, one. we all like just talked about how much we just physically hate this phrase it just made me recoil so annoying <laughs> now yeah. that one is, that one is like actually directly provably bad because yeah. well maybe not provably but hiding under the doona is a metaphor because when you hide under the doona you're a little kid scared of the dark and a doona offers no real protection against anything but it, it's comforting it makes you feel better even though it's it's not really protection so when he says we're hiding under the doona he means everyone's been being big scaredy cats doing something that's not real and we need to get out there and actually solve our problems. But what we've actually been doing by isolating and by hiding is we've been doing the medically and scientifically proven effective preventative to a lethal pandemic and it has been extremely effective. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. When It's you, like when if you... cowering under the table killed the murderer. Yeah. You... <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, we've all been doing the right thing and actually keeping ourselves alive, but we need to get back out there. So when he says hiding under the doona to refer to isolation, he's downplaying the effectiveness of that. He's actually like uh, like gaslighting us. He's calling Australia scaredy cats. And it's such yeah. a weirdly masculine thing as well. Like He's trying to guilt us into doing the wrong thing. He's basically saying, don't be a pussy. Oh, you're bloody using a seatbelt. Yeah. Oh, you you got to stop hiding out of the doona of your seatbelt. What he is doing, he, he is incapable of projecting his own strength. So all he can do is point out weaknesses. He is essentially saying... If we continue to do what we're doing, we're hiding under the doona. But I, as your fearless leader, will not allow it. And I uh, take my hand, child. I will guide us through the scared dark. You don't have to be worried about it at all. He is just trying to puff his chest up. And, and with that fucking frown again, like, oh, we can't, can't keep hiding under the doona because uh, there's, oh, there's clearly nothing wrong and I'm very powerful. It's the same as when you see Trump refusing to wear a mask. Yeah, it's 100%. Like 
Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> he's been doing this forever. Is the thing. I mean, if you, you probably, uh, everyone probably remembers his, uh, if you have a go, you get a go policy towards um, the social safety net and a welfare state um, means nothing. If you have a go, you get a go. It's, it's nothing. He, like Lang said, he can't be called on it. It means nothing. It offers no stability for anyone. No one can make a policy off of that. No one can call him a liar for that. But it has this vague sense of being profound because he's used the word go twice. I think it's it's one of those phrases where you know what he's intending to say. In itself, it's a pretty odious phrase as well. It's, he's basically saying, oh, if you try hard enough, you will get a job. And everyone yeah. knows that's yeah. fake. Which is also but false. he's made it vague enough that he can easily sort of disclaim his responsibility for it. And it means nothing in the yeah, end. Yeah, it's this vagary thing. Like, nobody can come up and just be like, hey, you know, I have a complaint. Uh, I had a go. I didn't get a go. <laughs> what follow-up is there to that? <laughs> well, you didn't have a, you didn't really have a go hard enough. Yeah, you didn't you didn't really make a go of it. But I mean, uh, like I said, th- th- this is a, this is a tweet from um, pretty much this time last year, um, where he he and he he tweeted this out. He just just tweeted it out. <laughs> it is my vision for this country as your prime minister to keep the promise of Australia to all Australians. Oh God, I forgot what about. What are you talking about? The promise of Australia. <laughs> yeah. That's nothing. And the thing is, as well, that there's never been a promise of Australia. Like we we know of the idea of the American dream, but there's never been a promise of Australia in the in the lexicon. All of those things are just made up, though. Yeah, if you thought the American dream was ill-defined, uh-huh. strap in. <laughs> like the Ameri- strap in. Get under the doona. You're about to hear <laughs> It would be better if he managed to have something like, it is my vision for this country as your prime minister to keep Australia as the luckiest country on earth. Still means nothing, but yeah, at but least would, ties it back it to something we- It still means nothing, but it's still a phrase. Yeah, Nothing. I think you're just saying his propaganda is ill-formed, and sure, but I mean, even if he said it well, the American dream was propaganda. Like, it's it's all just dumb truisms and propaganda, and it's because they don't have any respect for the truth or what they're saying or what people believe. They but just- what I'm saying is it's not even good propaganda. I uh, at least okay. respect the American dream for, for infecting the minds globally of the Western worlds, right. where right. everyone knows what the American dream is. There is no He made up the promise of Australia in 2019 <laughs> and just threw it out there like, yeah, you guys get it. Yeah. yeah, it's not an existing phrase. It's like if somebody said, you know, we believe in the American dream. And that was the whole sentence, but nobody had discussed the American dream before. Yeah. <laughs> just sort of left being like, the what? I, I just remembered something from when he was um, the Minister for Immigration. So this didn't come out until much later, but when he was the Minister for Immigration, he was responsible for a lot of the bad Liberal Party policy when it comes to turning back boats as well. Um, oh, yeah, what- he was Peter Dutton before Peter Dutton was exactly. Peter Dutton. Exactly. He was the first... <laughs> He was the first Peter Dunn. <laughs> um, but one of the funniest things that we didn't find out until they started taking pictures of his office when he became prime minister was that he awarded himself a trophy. And this is just like a, it's like a, it's a metal boat that, mm-hmm. and it's, that's on a stand. And he put in like Dymo tape, he put across it, I stopped these. And he awarded it to himself. He awarded yeah, himself a-, a trophy for stopping the boats, but he says, I stopped these. Like, it, like aside from the whole thing itself just being extremely hilarious that he awarded himself a trophy for doing that, <laughs> like, I stopped these. Like, 
it's I, the, it's it's a weird it's a weird tradition in Australia that the hazing ritual to become prime minister is to like effectively kill by proxy as many immigrants as you can, and like if you if you can if you can torture and kill a bunch of asylum seekers, you actually go into the running to be prime minister. It's fucked. Um, <laughs> yeah. But so that that boat and all of the language and everything like that I've sort of like the, the those small examples there, I genuinely think speak to the character of the man who you may or may not know was actually responsible for the Where the Bloody Hell Are You marketing campaign used like decades ago with Lara Bingle on a beach. And that always infuriated me because it should be Where the Bloody Hell Are Ya. It's uh, it's not you. Where the Bloody Hell Are You. Like it just stumbled because he's a he's a fake Australian with absolutely no sense of anything in the real world around him. He awards himself a boat saying, I stopped these. By, by the nature of torturing and killing asylum seekers. He just tweets out uh, the, the promise of Australia is something he made up and he thinks it's a good idea. My my central thesis to the, the, re- like the reason why this infuriates me so fucking much is because no one is talking about the fact that he speaks like this, he talks like this, and he writes like this out of fear. Fear and ignorance are what drives this man who... And you, you would understand this. You would make the connection, I reckon, if you've ever dealt with anyone from marketing. And I know it's trite to say, oh, so Scotty from marketing. <laughs> I know. But he but is pure is. marketing. It is just... And in, he, he, the way he speaks, and I think if, like this like triggered in my mind, and every time I've seen him since, I can't not think of it. But he only knows how to talk to people if they're fawning sycophants or if they're people in lesser positions than him that he's presenting a slideshow to and they can't leave. He has no idea how to talk to a voting public. He has no idea how to talk to people who are afraid. This is the same fucking oafish moron who grabbed hands. He literally went up and groped people and tried to grab their hand for a handshake after the like after the bushfires ravaged their areas. He has no idea how to talk to people and he's fucking terrified of it. It yeah, should be so always, easy to bring he, him down. He, when he flies into a rage whenever he's questioned, it, it's like it's got the same sort of vibe as like You've got like the marketing agency and you've got like the director's son is giving a presentation about a slogan and somebody <laughs> in the room like brings up some like, so how does this vibe with the um, actual like customer data that we've, uh, you know, aggregated around the actual sales of this product? And he's like, what are you talking about? It's a good slogan. <laughs> I, don't think it's just, I don't think it's just a marketing thing as well. Well, I mean, his own solitary marketing thing. I think the sort of, um, inability to speak authentically. I mean, we know for a fact that a lot of politicians can't interact normally, but this specific vein of trying to act blokey and trying to convey something um, that's like Australian but not really, like it's something that's much more wider spread. And you see it like, so Michaela Cash, uh, who's the employment minister, uh, she gave like a interview, um, I think two or three days ago, where she said she was going to uh, have a curry for the country. And it is the most bizarre. That is such a cooked interview. Oh, it is the most is. bizarre piece of camera I've ever seen. And again, like she's really trying very hard to convey an authenticity that just is not there. We yep. could potentially put in just a really quick soundbite there because it's just insane how hard yeah. she goes, oh, I can relate to people. Go and have a curry for the country. Cu- hey, <laughs> I'm going to tell the Prime Minister that one. A curry for the country. I love it. I love Indian food. It's my favourite food. I promise you I will do that. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I get uncomfortable seeing that clip because I'm like, she's going to like sprain something. She's <laughs> too enthusiastic. It's just like putting it on so hard. Yeah, it's... um. 
it, it's it's it comes from a class of people who were groomed for politics from a very early age, feel like they have a God-given right to lead, and just have never had to connect with anyone outside of that like uh, class of people, essentially. Like mm. that, you you always see prime ministers or like just you know um, politicians just not know the price of things. Like my, yeah. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past cash to think that a curry's about you know seventy five bucks or so. <laughs> like just no idea how any of that sort of shit works. And so my my closing my closing thesis, my little piece of homework for the for the listeners is if you want to get a sense of what um what Scott Morrison is trying to accomplish, listen to Dan Andrews speak. And we hang shit on Dan Andrews rightly because he's a fascist-adjacent little uh, climate ruiner. But he is also respected by his constituents. He speaks in an authoritative tone and he is genuinely a bit blokey. So when Dan Andrews gets like has to push back against the media, he takes a really like it's like it's like it's like Broden Kelly from Auntie Donna's dad song. Like he just has that <laughs> air of like, ah, now come on. I've I've told you before, we're not opening cafes just yet. You won't be able to go to the pub because the pub is shut. That doesn't mean you can have all your mates round to home and get on the beers. That's not appropriate. It's not essential. It's not needed. And all it will do is spread the virus. Whereas, like, Scott Morrison gets pushback from, like, hey, did you illegally spend, like, hundreds of millions pork barreling sports clubs all over the country? And he's just like, I told you before, I said no! And just yeah. panics, and and he's just, he's just he just freaks out because he doesn't know how to deal with someone who's not going. Oh, love that idea. Let's kick that in motion. I reckon we can get some dividends off the back of that. Good idea, Scomo. <laughs> Good nickname too. You're really cool. I think when none of your policy positions are based on substance or anything at all, um, you can't take any kind of questioning on them. You've got to keep everything moving. You've got to keep throwing more shit uh, uh, around just so that no one can stop and question things for long enough. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, that, that specific line when he was asked uh, this week about uh, his involvement in the sports rot scandal, where he was like, I, I've answered your question, I said no. It's good to see that the Canberra Press Gallery is back to politics as usual with Parliament coming back. Yeah, thank you. I've answered your question, I said no. It wasn't even a yes-no question. Like, the question <laughs> yeah. was... It was like, it's come out that, you know, uh, Bridget McKenzie's office received authority from you, uh, received authority to, to distribute those grants from you. Um, what do you say to that? Uh, like, that, that, those stories seem to contradict. And he's like, I've answered that question. I said no. It's like, what? Yeah. What does no mean in that context? Yeah. yeah. He's, got, he's got no idea how to handle it. And I hope he chokes. <laughs> Speaking of Dan Andrews, his office released uh, that statement about like uh, what's going to be happening with our coronavirus response over the next couple of weeks. I was actually very impressed with how it was like, look, mm. here's our plan. In a week, we're going to be easing restrictions on these things. In, in a couple of weeks, you know, you'll be able to have this many people at your restaurant. But it was very clear with like that is all dependent on how things go. And if there's more cases or if infection rates go up or if this isn't working, we will scale it back down. So take it easy. And I was like, that is exactly what we need to be saying. You can't say we're going to have an economic recovery by Easter. It's going to be great. It's all back on track. Because you you don't freaking know what's going to happen, and so I had a lot of respect for that. Yeah, I, yeah. I was I was watching Dan Andrews press conference the other day, um, and I I watched it live because my job is very easy, and. He didn't mention COVID safe once. He didn't say the word COVID safe once, except at the very end to say, and if you get the COVID safe app, 
blah, 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 blah. Because he's obviously running that line as well. He has to, he's a politician, blah, blah, blah. But that is the difference between, like, Daniel Andrews has a a clear path towards opening up cafes and restaurants and the logging industry and all the important stuff. And he presents it in a way that doesn't dumb it down, Mm. but that also clearly underlies the fact that he's thought about it. All Scott Morrison does is throw COVID safe around like an adjective because he's talking down to people because he doesn't know how to talk to people, but also because he just thinks if we get the marketing message of COVID safe being good out there, then everything else just sort of falls into place. So if we have a COVID safe economy, we can have COVID safe yeah. picnics with our COVID safe grandma. So you are saying nothing. And I think he knows he can pass the buck. Do you get the sense that he's very frustrated with that people just won't? You know, listen to <laughs> Oh, his yeah, he certainly yeah. feels entitled to his power and yeah. very angry when people don't grant that to him. I think yeah. he gets really, like, I mean, it, it's it's funny just to see, like, he's obviously objectively jealous of the fact that Andrews is handling it much better and doing it with much more enforcement. But he, I think he's just very frustrated that his line of marketing just isn't getting across. He's like, well, I'm a marketer. Surely this should be working and people should just listen to what I say. Yeah, he's marketing to people that he doesn't respect. Yes. And so it just comes across as it, it's the same energy as like if you've got like a a, 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 a mum and dad who are getting a divorce, like they're, they're like just arguing all the time, like things are really on the rocks and they've got like little kids and the little kids like, oh, you know, like, why are you crying, mummy? And they're like, oh, dad and I just had a conversation. It's, you know, nothing you need to worry about, blah, 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 blah. Except the kid in this story is 35. And it's like, (laughs) what are you doing? Just say what's going on. A Greenpeace investigation has come out with the stats on the Morrison bushfires. Yeah. Uh, The investigation reveals over 100 million tonnes of new coal extraction was approved during the bushfires. (laughs) During the bushfires. (laughs) Uh, as well as 352 megawatts of fossil gas power stations and 7,000 square kilometres of new fossil fuel expansion areas opened up across New South Wales and Queensland. Brutal. It's just so much shit mm. happened during and after, like directly after the bushfires. To Like, I think we, I mean, we definitely talked about while the bushfires were happening, that the, the 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 Liberal Party, the Conservatives, and the the Mineral Council of Australia, and all the rest of it are going to be using this opportunity to try to make some gains for the fossil fuel industry. I had no idea how brutal it was right as we were saying it. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, people, what I just like, realised though. Like, I, I remember at the time of the bushfires, like we were getting really pissed off about like Morrison and others saying, "Well, now's not the time to be talking about any partic- potential links." Well, apparently, it was the time to still be approving all this stuff, though. So, <laughs> yeah. what's the argument? It's it's a classic thing. Like, anytime anybody says that, obviously, it's a lie. But it's like uh, it's the fact that they see climate action as political. And that building new coal mines is not political because their mates say it's okay. And it's their side of the politics. So, of course, they are going to keep doing it. Um, There was also uh, part of this investigation has revealed in not at all a shock at fucking all. uh, Uh News Corp produced 75% of all articles that denied the influence of climate change on the bushfires, despite publishing only 46% of all articles on climate change and the bushfires. Like, not a surprise. Yeah, it's News Corp. It's their fault. It's it's just weird that 
leftists of all type and scientists and conservationists, whatever, have to get better at just ignoring or like ignoring bad arguments or just saying then that this mm. just saying that they're not arguments to say that like does this is this bushfire you can't prove that this bushfire was caused by climate change it's like we're not we're not talking about that i don't know man. we have to get better at countering them. i don't think the leftists are the problem here because like if the leftists ignore it or don't uh, accept the debate Newcorp keeps publishing it. They're they're setting the message. Them, yeah. the government, you know, all that whole thing. They can happily carry on by themselves, um, claiming it's a debate or claiming it's not even true. Like, yeah, what do you do about that? Besides, I don't know. Freaking actively crack down on it. Absolutely, you don't subscribe to their things. And if someone tries to claim it's a debate, and this is an argument, I have really gone off at people about because you do get leftists in good faith who yeah that's what i mean oh we can teach the debate thing but yeah i don't think that's the problem here yeah it's not the debate about the facts but i think it there is part of it it is is being unambiguous about the fact yeah that climate change is news corp's fault yeah yeah (laughs) and and don't accept both sidesism when it pops up in non-news corp areas because that's 75 percent that's not going away but when the abc or something or bloody question time or Q&A yeah. or whatever they are, when they try to do both sides of stuff, absolutely correct. That's, that, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's closer to like the, like the extreme leftists, the, 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 the bloody communists, we're not going to be <laughs> running afoul of this. But I'm talking about, yeah, the ABC, the left flank of the Labor Party, even sometimes the Greens engaging mm. with this. When you've even got Crikey trying to write mm. an art- article, like if you frame your article as saying like, um, the Liberal Party is saying that climate change isn't connected to these bushfires. However, blah, 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 blah. No, mm. you unambiguously go, the climate change caused yeah. bushfires are, and then you go on to the rest of the reporting. You don't even engage with it as a, a silly argument. You just give the, as, like, you just you just work from the assumption that everyone knows it's a silly argument because they're working from the assumption that yeah. everyone knows there's no connection. That's the it's problem. It's like the, the tweet by the New York Times uh, that they had to retract, which was delightful, because they do the classic both sides things with Trump. Uh, and they tweeted something like, many experts deny yeah. the use of <laughs> oh, injecting bleach to treat coronavirus. <laughs> and then they had to follow that up with, uh, sorry, um, what we mean is, obviously, you shouldn't <laughs> inject bleach. No experts say that's good. Many uh, experts. We, we, yeah. You gotta hand it to him. And it's like, wow, you've both sides so hard that you can't even be firm on don't drink bleach or don't inject bleach. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. There's an issue with journalist speak where like and it's not even just because of Australian defamation laws, but there is something about the whole like when when trying to present facts as objectively as possible, you will you will write a sentence like a, a large number of health experts disagree with the assertion that drinking bleach might be good for you. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah, you can just say that it's not. But this is something that I've noticed. I've noticed this a lot um, having been on Twitter for far too long. Um, I've noticed this particularly with, um, you know, journalists who are terminally online who are insistent on, you know, trying to display as if they're um, neutral on an issue. Mm. But that's the thing. It's it's the same as centrists. It's like, Mm. you know, if they're really, really intent on – you know, being straightforward and saying, oh, I I couldn't possibly pretend to have an opinion on this because I'm a journalist Mm. and I have to remain objective. They usually 
tend to tilt right and they usually tend to be more sympathetic with giving right-wing points of view because they feel like they're somehow left out of the conversation. They're much more easy to be massaged into giving uh, a platform for opinions that are otherwise con- like not considered by people at all or considered in any sort of way. It's also just very safe because obviously if you don't take a position either way, you can't be called on it. You're just saying, I'm presenting the facts, we'll let people make up their minds. But yeah. I think that is wildly irresponsible because the whole point of journalism, the whole point of experts is that most people don't have the information to make up their minds. Like, that's why we have scientists and doctors and shit. Like, I can't be expected to make up my own mind on the structural stability of a new bridge. I'm not a fucking structural engineer. <laughs> leave that to someone who knows their stuff. Tell me the bridge will work if they say it will. Don't say, some people say the bridge is good. Some people say the bridge is bad. I guess it's up to you whether you drive over the bridge. No! Um, (laughs) That that was a tweet that I saw earlier today, and I'm not going to find the link to it. Sorry, Isaac. Uh, Where somebody was, (laughs) like, posting a screen grab from Facebook where they were told that... Um, they should do their own research and not just implicitly trust the CDC. And she was like, I'm sorry, hold on. Are you saying that the research that I could do this afternoon on Google is equivalent to $8 billion worth of scientists? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh yeah. No, I'm going to trust the CDC. There's this real crazy thing that this is the thing that I spoke about in like the first episode of this podcast or like the second. Um, so if you're a new listener, go back and listen to the entire back catalogue and then come back. Um, it's, it's the, the sort of this impression that journalists give off that they don't think that they're involved. Mm. Yes. Like, yeah. Yep. they're not part of the world that's dying from climate change. That if, uh, as long as we remain neutral and just report the facts, things are going to be okay. It's like, the oh, facts will bear out. Your children will be part of the society that is collapsing from child. Like you, very plausibly, well, it, it, look mm. around you now. You're part of the society that's collapsing be- because of climate change and capitalism. Like, how are you neutral? Like, why are you trying to be, to be neutral? What value does neutrality have? If you've got somebody running at you with a knife being like, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to like be glad that I did. And you're like, well, let's be neutral about this. Stop. Stop it. What's, <laughs> what's, what's in your head? <laughs> it is giving you this instinct of like, oh, now's the time to be neutral. Now's the time to fight for your fucking life, journalists. <laughs> Step up. Step up or die. The broader problem, though, is that they don't have any risk in their life. They don't have. There's no risk to them. In well, there is. In, no, no, but there is. There is risk to them, but they've lived for so long without that risk in their life that they can't yeah. possibly quantify that in any sort of real terms. They can't see that far into the future and say, "Oh, wow, this is my entire life at stake." Well, um, even during the bushfires, though, when we started seeing things that were like, oh, this could jeopardise the Australian food supply chain. Yeah. The journalists are like, well, there's a lot of opinions about the blah, blah, blah. Like, but do you yeah, want to eat journalists? <laughs> I, I still, like, genuinely, I don't. I just think that they just don't think about it. I, I agree with Evie. I think, I think we still haven't had a lot of it hit home for a lot of people, especially in the sort of journalist class. Yeah. Um, but I think this is this is very much like a cultural thing, a little bit of, it's important to be nice and to not kick up a fuss and to not to like be stubborn or disagree with people. And often that holds if you're like arguing over which restaurant to go to, because that's not important. But there's also the sort of myth that the truth will win out and that if you just present the facts and present the truth, people will go, ah, that one's the truth and the truth will win. And we all know that doesn't work. If the truth 
had some kind of natural winning ability like it does in Marvel movies, the world would be a very <laughs> different place. Lies beat the truth because lies make money or friggin' accomplish shit. You have to help spread the truth or the truth doesn't just get out there by itself. I think as well, it's a reluctance on the part of journalists to to fully engage with the fact that they they set agendas, they don't just report on them. Oh, like the, yeah. the biggest the biggest example, the best example for me, and I will beat this drum till I fucking die, is the fact that Annabelle Crabb had a direct influence in giving us Scott Morrison as prime minister. She did the series where she cooks with politicians in their kitchens. Yeah, Ha-ha, that's who I was this? thinking of when I mentioned what's- journalists on Twitter before. <laughs> yeah, what's this? What, what, who? What's this daggy dad cooking up today? Who gives a fuck? He's literally killing asylum seekers. Why? you in his fucking kitchen you should be saying why are you such a monster then during the election she writes a piece going holy shit looks like scott morrison is single-handedly keeping the liberal party afloat and maybe by dint of personality he could win this election and then he wins the election and she goes i was just reporting on the facts absolutely in no way did she ever stop and think and then publicly say me doing these things as a media as a journalist as a media figure Put the idea into people's minds that maybe Scott Morrison is worth voting for. Mm. You cannot just present things and say, I'm objective and so you won't be influenced. Everything is subjective. That's how it fucking works. I think it's fine to assume that she actually implicitly supports Scott Morrison. Yeah, 100%. Oh, she's absolutely a supporter of Scott Morrison because yeah. she provided material support. Like, by definition, she's a supporter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, think it's, I think it's part. we're past the point of just assuming best uh, a, a good faith in terms of being neutral. And if you're in, if you're explicitly giving that sort of platform without any sort of hard questions, then you're a supporter. That's it. Yeah. Just like, if you're just reporting the facts on Scott Morrison, here's a fact about Scott Morrison. Multiple refugees died while under his purview as immigration minister. That's, mm. that's a fact. And if yeah. you're just reporting the fact and you're choosing to leave that out because it happened years ago... That's an editorial decision to omit that fact that you are making. And maybe that's a reasonable decision to make because it's not directly relevant to blah, 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 blah. But it is a decision that you are making to omit that fact. And And and, and there's no neutrality in the world. You're always deciding what to put in and what to leave out. And people always decide to leave out the stuff that is like slightly older, even if it is more important. Who gives a shit what Scott Morrison had for dinner when Mm. he killed refugees? And also if... And gave himself a trophy for it. <laughs> and if if a politician makes a statement or says something, even if it's an opinion and it's verifiably untrue, like oh Australia's reducing our friggin' emissions, or oh we're we're doing great at whatever that we're obviously not, report that as part of the statement. Don't just say Angus Taylor says we've got too much wind, or Scott Morrison says we'll beat our targets in a canter. Say Scott Morrison falsely reported that we would beat our targets in a canter, unfortunately, the actual data is this. Because if you just report what they say, you're implying that that has merit. Just even try using the word lied. You probably can't use the word lied, but say this is what they said, but unfortunately, the actual facts of this. I mean, the Australian press loves using weasel words already, like some say and, you know, Ugh. people think and blah, blah, blah. Like, fucking start using about that about start using that on politicians. Like, Angus Taylor says, oh, we're going to meet our emissions in a canter. No, right? we're not. And then your news piece just says, some politicians have been talking about meeting our targets in mm. a canter. This is demonstrably untrue because blah, 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 blah. You're still yeah. just reporting the facts. You're still just reporting them neutrally. Some politicians are saying it. You, that's what I mean. You, you're making that decision of what to put in and what to leave out. And 
that is your hand. I'm talking directly to the many, many journalists who listen to this podcast. It's your hand, you doing it. You're also responsible for climate change, especially if you work for News Corp, where you are directly yeah. responsible for climate change. And when people fucking use the statement as their headline, like Angus Taylor says, we've got too many renewables, that imp- they were implying that that's true. It's insane. Yeah, and obviously we got in a bit of a tension about that, but um, that uh, Greenpeace investigation uh, is a a really interesting and and pretty bleak and damning read. Um, Also, if you're not into reading, they've got a little mini documentary about it that they've put on YouTube that is just basically showing all the stuff that they found out about how many fossil fuel projects were approved in Australia during the bushfires. And it's just an interesting parallel to how many fossil fuel projects and deforestation projects and stuff being approved also during the pandemic. I'm so glad that they pointed out the link as well between all the arson stuff um, on Facebook, the arson hoax. Oh, yeah. They just had the part of that includes a study that um, the, the it's arson and not climate change hoax was uh, pretty directly pushed by News Corp as well. Yeah. Every time you spread a, a false thing like this, even if everyone knows it's false, it gives so much new life to all of those climate deniers. We saw that with Michael Moore's thing. It'll keep happening. Just don't spread false shit. Australia has a Coronavirus Recovery Commission, and Mm. it is staffed by medical experts, by scientists, by epidemiologists. Oh, hang on a second. No, it's staffed wall to wall by fossil fuel ghouls. Um, Just the worst, most aberrant people anyway, who are now also in charge of something that is outside of their purview, outside of their um, work history and expertise, but also outside of um, any sort of action that will lead to us being on a sustainably livable planet in 50 years' time. Yeah, like, I I don't want to say wall to wall. It may be 50% or more. Uh, there are a few there who are just rich guys or you know, <laughs> executives of Telstra or whatever. The good ones. Um, but we can, you know, it is it is wall to wall old white guys in suits <laughs> and two women. Ms. Um, Monopolies. And uh, I reckon none of them are below uh, 50 Look, I can't back that up either, but it's the usual suspect. <laughs> I can't back that up. We'll never know how old they are. <laughs> you know what? We'll put it in a link because um, there is there is a great um, there's a great there's a great uh, website that shows you exactly who they are and exactly what their links are to the fossil fuel industry. Not um, good enough I- with the scoop on the ages of the coronavirus recovery commission. <laughs> um, I just want to list some of my favourite people on this commission. We've talked about Neville Power, uh, who's like the head guy. Um, but in case you missed last episode, oh, how dare you? He is like an oil and gas guy. He's He's been head of oil and gas industries. He works for, he, he's like head of the Perth airport. He's in oil and gas up to his neck. It gets worse. They're special advisors. They've got friggin' the guy who is the director of Saudi Aramco, the world's biggest oil and gas company, as their special advisor. Uh, Andrew Liveris. Uh, and who are, who are actively looking at, um, at developing more gas in Australia. They've got Catherine Tanner, who has been a senior executive in Shell and BHP. They've got James <laughs> Fazzino, who's on the board of the APA, who runs the biggest gas network in Australia. Like, okay. the sheer density of oil and gas people, like big oil and gas people here, whose entire work history has been, how can we exploit Australia's oil and gas reserves? You get these guys in a room and you say, 
Hey guys, uh, you're in the oil and gas industry, just off the top of your heads. What could we do to get Australia's economy working? Uh, I'm just going to start writing some things on this whiteboard. No wrong answers. Oil and gas. Okay, oil and gas. Uh, oil and gas. All right. All right. Oh, another one for oil and gas. Okay, we'll underline that a few times. Uh, oh, oh, I'm seeing a bit of a trend here. Anybody got... Anybody want to go with, like, I don't know, more schools? Oh, we don't have any school people here. Okay, anybody want maybe renewables? We don't have any renewables people? That's okay. Well, we'll go with the oil and gas. Like, do, fucking... Do we, do, do we have any podcasters in? No podcasts? Now, okay, okay. Yeah. This is a hand-picked group. These people were not were not elected in any way. Um, they were chosen by the government. Now, when you choose a group like this... And you ask them to just, you just, just come up with some stuff. You guys are the experts. No, you chose oil and gas guys. They're going to bring you oil and gas projects. And then you're going to go, well, our commission advised by friggin' these big guys in the world's biggest environment destroying things that we should destroy the environment. Who are we to argue? Yeah. And they're getting paid mad cash. Like the, uh, the head Neville Power. He's getting $260,000 for six months' work. He does not need that money. We yeah, are he's already an executive. To and he tell hasn't us stopped to being do more oil and gas. Also, yeah. like, that's, that's, a, that's a number, too, which is like, that's so much money for me. That's really not much money for Neville Power. Like, that's, <laughs> it's that's, a drop in the water. That's like when, when yeah. you talk about billionaires' um, level of wealth. Like that's some. Like that's what he thinks um, a car costs. <laughs> like honestly, he's he'd, just, he'd yeah. probably do it for free if yeah. you asked him on the street. Oil and gas, he'd say yes. It's also um, worth pointing out that this is coming at a time when uh, I won't get into the details, but essentially after BlackRock started to say, "Hey, we should divest from fossil fuels," fossil fuel industry are starting to divest from fossil fuel. Um, oh, yeah. One of the best examples was <laughs> Shell recently was forced to admit that their plans are actually to go completely carbon neutral by 2050. Mm. They are, there's, there's all these different, like, international, on the international scale, a whole bunch of different banks, investment firms, uh, fossil fuel industry, or fossil fuel companies, rather, essentially taking the money from fossil fuels and putting it into renewables. So when we talk about how, like, the Coronavirus Recovery Commission is being stacked with mm. these fossil fuel peddlers we're talking about it in a context that australia is also being laughed at internationally for doing so we're fucking idiots when we come to this this is just because the 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 australian federal government for the last literally for the last 25 years has been stacked by people from the fossil fuel industry or by people who want to go to the fossil fuel industry that's it though when it comes to shell saying that they want to be carbon neutral what does that actually mean for something like shell which is primarily that their money is coming from petroleum so it can mean a few different things. You have to read pretty closely what they're saying. Um, currently, you have a lot of big companies like Shell and BHP, um, and they say, oh, this sector of our company has gone carbon neutral in our operations. Um, that means that their specific, you know, maybe their trucks or their oil rigs or whatever, they're offsetting the emissions, the emissions created to dig up that coal or to produce that oil. They're not counting the emissions from that actual oil because that's not counted as part of their operations usually. But the thing Mitch is talking about where he's saying Shell and and Exxon and stuff are looking at at being carbon neutral by 2050, that is saying that they're going to cover the the emissions from the burning of their product, which which is nuts and amazing. But also you'll notice 2050, what's that, 30 years away? They're all counting that 
everyone on that board will be dead or retired <laughs> long by the time that's their problem. Yeah, what they're also what they're also trying to do is um, leverage themselves to be the industry leaders in the renewable energy sector. So they're wanting mm. to get ahead on solar panel production, wind farm technology, all the rest I of mean, it. They, they essentially done want this to decades ago. They could have been right. at the front of. Yeah. They could have been at the front, like you know, a long, long time ago. That, yep. That's what yep. kills me with this stuff. Like, you know, we've had this technology for decades and decades now. If you really wanted to be at the forefront, you would have been on the ground floor. And, like, some of them yeah. were. but That's propaganda. Yeah. It is. Um, they've been saying that for a long time. They do invest a large amount of money for a normal person, like a few <laughs> billion or a few billion. It is a tiny <laughs> fragment and it's insignificant compared to the money they invest in new uh, fossil fuels. Yeah, um, so, yeah, yeah it just everything they're actively doing, ignore what they're saying. Everything they're actively doing shows no sign of slowing down. Yeah. I just want to quickly point out, because we did mention that um, that uh, Australia, you know, is is losing money on oil and gas. We are, we are being bled dry by just throwing our resources hand over fist at foreign-owned companies, charging them very little tax. Um, and a lot of the people responsible for that are on the board. You'll be glad to know. Um, so Catherine Tanner was was um, the managing director of the Queensland Gas Company um, and and a few of the projects where we built those big new gas um, exporting ports up in Queensland um, and all of the people on the board who aren't actively in the oil and gas companies um, are still manufacturing. They're still big industry. And the youngest person on the board, we've just, thanks to Isaac, is Mike Pizzullo. He's not an oil and gas guy, but he is the uh, Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Customs and Border Protection Service at 55. It's <laughs> a spring chicken. The NTEU is the, we've mentioned them before, they're the union for um, academics, researchers, tutors, lecturers, all the rest of that. Um, they are essentially uh, the shoppies for people with uh, doctorates. Shoppies is the union that covers essentially, you know, the, the lowest paid people at Woolworths and Coles. We mentioned them before. They're a terrible union. They were exempt from the Liberal Party's Royal Commission into unions. They actively opposed marriage equality and they work hand in glove with the Liberal Party to screw over workers all the time. The so NTE- like a union in name only kind of thing. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. The NTEU is, they're kind of like the shoppies in that they're bad for workers, but they're more like- they're bad out of sheer incompetence as opposed to, like, pure malevolence. But they also, are- the, the difference with the NTEU is that ultimately the main body of the union is fine. It's the leadership that's the problem. That's that's the other thing as well. The, the the leadership of the NTEU, I don't think, come from a background of fighting that hard. I think they are, like, a lot of them are academics or academically minded, so they don't have the same sort of, like ideas about what a union could do. You know, like the NTEU leadership will sort of look at a, a negotiation and sort of go, hmm, maybe if we sit down and negotiate this, we can get the best case scenario for the most amount of people and we can reach a Pareto optimal sort of setting where the both employer and employee can have a can have a bit of back and forth and then come out with the best financial uh, position. Whereas the CFMEU or a tradies union will just miss a meeting because they're selling cocaine to a bikey called Crank with an SS logo <laughs> on his helmet. Like, it's just a different... It's a different That's vibe. What the union should be doing. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But so the, the background of this story is that um, it's been revealed over the last few uh, weeks that the NTEU and 38 universities across Australia were in secret negotiations to try and save as many jobs as they possibly could during the um, coronavirus epidemic. Obviously, everywhere is being hit. Universities are being hit hard over the last 10 years because of the Liberal Party's cutting of funding to education. And so they were trying to figure out like what would be the so best so way not to keep- for- JobKeeper, right? No, no. That's the that's that's part of the problem. Is that that's why they were trying to like keep things going as best they could without like wading into the that quagmire of um of stuff. What they ended up negotiating for, what the the, the what the union, my fucking union. Which also this is this is problematic for me. I've <laughs> this is weird because it's the most like bougie adjacent union to be part of. Like no, I'd say like, that's the ASU. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe, but but it's just like you know, but oh, my union didn't give me the 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 best conditions that I can teach the second uh, formulation of the categorical imperative to my philosophy students, and I'm 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 quite outraged by it. But but still, they represent workers; they should do their fucking job. What they ended up doing was negotiating. They negotiated into this. They negotiated into potentially allowing these the university management system to cut hours of uh, staff by 10% as well as cutting their wages by 15%. When you say they they negotiated into that, um, are you saying that the the starting point was was better than that? We don't know. And they offered to drop it because maybe they they negotiated like that was the best deal they could. Yeah. Because that's how hard the universities want to fuck the people that work for them. Oh, yeah. Like, a hundred percent. They Yeah, they, they thought that that was a good thing to then present to their base, was just be like, hey, good news, you're getting 10% less hours, but also the hours that you have less are going to be paid 15% less. Works out to an average of about 380 a fortnight. Instead of just, like, striking or something. Yeah, yeah and exactly. Most yeah. casual, most casualised uni workers that I know all have second and third jobs because it doesn't pay mm. enough already. I know and literal doctors who have to take summer jobs in offices. Yeah. Look, and yeah. and yeah. I, I think a lot, like, so there have been, like, there's been a lot of discussion about this while this has been, um, while now that this has come out. Um, and Ben Eltham was saying, look, at least they saved your jobs. You should be grateful for that. Mm. Which is Ugh. really, first no. of all, the shittiest possible thing you could say, you know, in terms of a union negotiation. You shouldn't be happy. You should fight for what's, you know, your what you're due. Um, it's and, the, yeah. It's the classic. Any job is better than nothing, so you should be grateful for what you get. It's what we see in America, where they say don't lift the minimum wage because even if you're getting paid two dollars an hour, it's a job. No, it's not a fucking job. It's slavery. Yeah, it's I the hate thing, this it's whole the thing idea that... of like you should be grateful. No, oh, I'm not it's grateful. the worst. I want what I'm worth. But the, th- the the thing that always comes out of the that sort of rhetoric as well is that there's never a there's never a pushback from the unions, from the media, from whoever else. Like talking to the very heads of the corporations, to the deans yeah. of universities and the administration, going, "You're lucky you've still got a job. We could, you, you should be getting a pay cut. You should be on minimum wage while we get through this crisis, so we can still afford to pay our workers. You, you should be thankful. You get to keep an executive position. It's, no, it's always, oh, you, sh- you should be grateful that you still get seven dollars an hour. Um, and it, it is, it is definitely worth noting on this that. It, the, the people up the top should be getting pay cuts. They should be losing their jobs first because uh, reporting has come out that RMIT laid off nearly 200 casuals and then the administration at RMIT asked the contracted workers to pick up the slack. It's just they maddening. Let, 
So the work still has to be done. The administration don't know how to do it properly. So instead of taking a pay cut, they lay off workers so the numbers look good and then they ask people to do unpaid work to cover the difference. It's fucking disgusting. And for the NTEU to just roll over on that and go, oh, actually, any job's a good, any job's a job. (laughs) Fuck them. The only good thing about this is that the NTEU can be pushed on their positions. They are open. They are open to their base telling them what to do. I've been involved in that myself personally. And that's why I'm confident to say that they are just incompetent as opposed to evil. This is the first that's time the as well that I've seen like a union base who is willing to sort of organise and tell their leaders this isn't good enough. Um, yeah. So Connor Jolly on Twitter, he's a great follow, by the way, um, is org- is part of the organising group called NTU Fight Back who are working on pressuring the union to do their job to yep. actually work in in assistance to their base. Yeah, it's fucking good. There's a, there's a link in the show notes to a Google Drive that they've set up, which just has all the talking points, all the different information, all of the stats and figures and stuff. And yeah, they've got emergency meetings on uh, voting. They're sending call outs to organize at your local university, local university, at your university if you work there to get as many people involved as you can. Um, and it's, re- it's really good to see how quickly this has sort of come together. But it's just fucked that it had to come together at all. That's my main grievance. It's like, you don't you don't negotiate that. You negotiate other things around it, but you don't let hours be cut that much as well as wages. Like, that's just, yeah. that's moronic. It's insane that they're cutting hours and wages. It's like... Uh, yeah, it's cutting hours and cutting wages and also firing people who are doing work that still needs to be done. So, it's cutting hours, cutting wages and increasing workloads. There's a, another just just wild piece of news that, that came out this week. So the uh, BHP implemented a new enterprise agreement uh, that left workers worse off than the award minimum. Um, when we talk about like award minimum, it just means that there are laws saying how much you can pay someone doing a particular job. And when you enter, uh, when you try to uh, negotiate with a boss, usually unions do this for a wage, you negotiate around it, but the, the bare minimum has to be the award minimum. You might get a bit more than that, or you might get some other benefits, but it can't actually go below that. Yeah. And BHP implemented a new enterprise agreement, which was just below that, which they can't do. Yeah, well, there's there's certain scenarios where you are allowed to do that, and sort of large scale negotiations are that kind of scenario. But this this one particularly, I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying that they haven't committed a crime. They've just fucked their workers legally, which is you know the the <laughs> sort of preferred way to fuck workers from the the people who uh, it's are in charge evil. of what the the laws uh, get written as. So in this case, though, the um, the Fair Work Commissioner, uh, this is Gerard Boyce, uh, emailed BHP the internal modelling that the Fair Work Commission had come up with that said that this deal would be ultimately paying workers lower than the minimum. Um, and then two hours later, he approved the deal. So he, <laughs> as the Fair Work Commissioner, so the Fair Work Commission is ostensibly the body that ensures that this doesn't happen. And the head of that body saw the modelling that said it's going to happen. He got in touch with BHP. He was like, yeah, you're fucking your workers. Nice one. <laughs> cool. And if you're thinking like, Gerard Boyce, have I heard that name a little while ago? He was, he was in the news a little while ago because he got in trouble because he decorated his office with little anime titty figurines. <laughs> that's, that's the last thing I heard of from him. Was he, had to, he had to take down his, his, his little models of scantily clad bloody Sailor Moon that he was putting up. 
And, uh, These are the people making decisions. Oh my god! Yeah, this is the head of the Fair Work Commission. After he was forced to take down his anime titty figurine, he replaced them with a life-size cardboard cutout of Donald Trump. Um, he was appointed to that position by the coalition because, of course, uh, they just love to put the worst, stupidest, just grossest people in the top positions of power. That's the MO of the coalition. It's the MO of all conservatives. I mean, it's just like... says dudes rock. I don't want to... <laughs> I don't want to yuck anyone's yum. If you're into big titty anime figurines, mm-hmm. like, you're wrong, but all power to you. It's, it, it, it is dumb and bad. And yeah, you if feel you're bad. decorating but- your lounge room with anime titty figurines, you do you. You do you. But if you're just know that it's still pretty. Your office, yeah. head of the fucking Fair Work Commission just with anime <laughs> titty figurines. What are you doing? Just the, why would you put someone in charge of the Fair Work Commission? Why would you put someone in charge of the Fair Work Commission who doesn't have the wherewithal to go? I shouldn't put up anime titty figurines in my work office. No, you know what why the it is. Fuck? I just look at, so I went back to see that. It's it's just an own the left thing. It's like, so it's like James McGrath, um, Senator McGrath, who put in like taxidermied animals in his office um, oh, right. when he came just in. To show he's cool. Yeah. So when he, when he put that in his office, he's like, I hope this doesn't annoy the greenies because then I really need to try harder. Yeah. The, I think that the um, own the left thing is like classic cup. Like, I, I do things to annoy conservatives, but the things that I do are the things that I want to do. But just like, the idea... That the, I like, that I'm just like, look, the conservatives are annoyed by the way that I live my life. That's nice, but it's the way that I live my life. You know? yeah. Like, nobody's just like, oh, I hate these anime titty figurines that I've filled my office with, but it's worth it because some theoretical liberals are getting annoyed. <laughs> I no, just, just all the women in your office are really deeply uncomfortable around yeah, you. Yeah, that's the thing that gets me. It's just like... Uh, man, that's um, that's actually kind of that's kind of that's kind of gross, and I'm I'm kind of uncomfortable with these huge titties. Oh, triggered much snowflake? No, but <laughs> no, guys- no, no. I'm just kind of uncomfortable by and- your overt sexual expression of the female form. Oh, I bet you are. No, and dude, you know it's you've contrarian. missed this entirely. <laughs> you know it's contrarian because immediately as soon as he took them down, he put Donald Trump instead. So it's really hmm. just a triggered thing. It like, might still no, it might still be a sexual thing. I mean, both. Yeah. It can be both. It's <laughs> definitely both. It's both. It's absolutely both. But it's at minimum, he wants the anime titty figurines. He bought them and he put them up. And he's like, oh, if I'm not allowed to put up bloody nude card captor Sakura at my office, that's not fair. And I'm the Fair Work Commissioner. So I've got it. At very best, that kind of thing shows that they're more committed to ideology or the the things that they perceive as as <sighs> being like part of their ideology than like things that are actually good or even good for them or make life more pleasant <laughs> in general. They'd rather stick it to the other side than have things be good. Yeah. Nobody, you know, if if you're putting up stuff in your office that you are not even that into just to win a point in a culture war, then that's why you're on the wrong side of the culture war. I think I think that you guys who are thinking that he's not genuinely into anime TD figurines are giving him way too much. No, credit. I think he's look up a Google image of this guy case, and tell me that he's case. not into anime TV figurines. <laughs> 
in more smooth brain business news, um, there was a headline from the ABC calls to reopen Uluru climb to kickstart mm-hmm. Northern Territory tourism hit by coronavirus. Ah, yeah. Two two issues with this. The first one is the uh, is the obvious one. This is uh, Dave Baddock. Um, has said the concept there is that, that the traditional owners would provide tours for paying climbers and have a safety harness system in place, just like the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Mm. Dave Baddock is a businessman who has clearly done no research or reading on the matter. <laughs> He's just one of those business people that is, is, is in there probably because some family members gave him some hands up in life and he's refused to acknowledge that and he just reckons he's brilliant. So when he wakes up in the morning and has one of those nonsense pre-coffee ideas, he just runs with it all day and only has people going, oh, brilliant, well done, love it, love it. And then he just puts it out into the public as if it's a really fucking good idea. It's like the Northern Territory has um, has been hit pretty hard by uh, by coronavirus. What could we do to, to kickstart that. I mean, dogfights. Yeah, what yeah. about just dogfights? Like, no, some things are just things you don't propose again. There's no reason well, to bring that up. It's like there was a reason we got rid of these things. Um, exactly. And if you're not, if if you're like, we should reopen Uluru, okay, did we did we fix the reason we closed it, which was the massive cultural insult that it was? Oh, no, we haven't fixed that. Okay, then, then you haven't actually changed the reason we closed it. So, yeah. Yeah, and people Nuts. are still allowed to visit Uluru. They're just not allowed to climb it. That's yeah. the that's the point. And it, it, his his sort of thing of like, oh, and we'd put a safety harness system in place. Like, safety was not the issue. <laughs> Like, yeah. Can we look up where Dave Baddock's, like, you know, descendants are buried so that we can go and do parkour off their tombstones <laughs> and be like, oh, no, we'll put mats down around them, though, so don't worry, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's the thing, is that the, the, specific, the, the fact that he's quoted specifically saying, like, oh, traditional owners will provide to us and we'll have a, a safety harness system in place just like the Sydney Harbour Bridge just it just reveals the fact that all he's doing is thinking about the spectacle of it and he sees the ad he sees the sunrise behind Uluru and a trail of black figures in shadow walking up the thing and the swelling music comes forward and there's tourism back in the NT absolutely not thinking at all about why it was shut down in the first place and why we need to to get rid of it um the, uh, this is actually another classic example of what we were talking about earlier, which is uh, reporting on something that shouldn't be reported on. This guy shouldn't have been given airtime. That was because- my yeah. <laughs> that was that was the Isaac just posted in the chat that he's the manager of Alice Springs Air- Airport. Of course so, yeah. it is. Which yeah, I mean, he's, he's head of like a business group or, or something as yeah, well. Yeah, he's he's the he's What's the chairman of the, the Alice Springs. Dudes? He, yeah, I, I know. Uh, it's money. Um, he's the he's the chairman of Alice Springs Major Business Group and the general manager of Alice Springs Airport, which you know, to, not to give him any benefit of the doubt, but like they did see a huge decrease in people flying to the Northern Territory or using the Alice Springs Airport when they closed um, oh, the, sure. the the walking up all the route. Because of course you would, because that was a part of the tourism. That's not to say you reopen it again. That's like that's like looking at the 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 economic decline in the Southern states of America and being like, why don't we just bring back a little slavery? Like, yeah, no. No a decrease in flights to Darwin after World War II finished as well. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the second here's, point. Here's the thing is, is that idea was, the idea of reopening was immediately flat shut down by the head of the Uluru Katatuda Board of Management. Like the, yep. the guy who, who runs Uluru, he just said, no, that's not happening. 
so this is this is not actually a debate. They're just this is just going to kickstart another stupid culture war. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's um Sa- Sammy Wilson in the article. Uh, it says uh, in this article by the ABC, but the idea was flatly rejected by Sammy Wilson, who was the chairman of the Uluru. Like said, blah 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 blah. This is my second fucking issue with this: is that that quote is about two thirds of the way through this ABC article, and the headline is. Calls to reopen Uluru climb to kickstart Northern Territory tourism hit by coronavirus. Why couldn't it mm. have been... Like, first off, why couldn't it have been a non-story? Just not fucking mention it. But why mm. wasn't the why wasn't the headline something like uh, elders bothered by business interests not even a year since Uluru closure? Or, yeah. or, or, or businesses wanting to forego the good work done by activists by reopening... It's like the, the framing Uluru of it. Shuts it, down stupid idea. Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's, it's so... The ABC, uh, specifically Emma Haskin, who wrote it, and her editors, really need to have a long fucking hard look at themselves of why they would decide to run this story and frame it in this way. It's fucking stupid. They know And then we have to talk about it and give air to this thing to just say, ABC, pull your head out of your ass and start doing better again. And if you do want to report both (sighs) sides of an article or both sides of of an argument... Pick which one you report or how you report it first. The one that you put at the top two-thirds of the article, you're implying that that's the default option. In political news, well, I would call it political even though it's technically journalism news. Um, the Australian- well, we know that News Corp's directly responsible for climate change. So exactly. So this <laughs> go is, on. I would say this is a political decision. The Australian has a new editor. Oh! <gasps> Oh, congratulations to the Australian. Uh, Benji's telling me all about it, apparently. (laughs) Um, Michelle Gunn, who's the first woman uh, in the Australian's history. Oh, my God. I can't believe that as soon as I say (laughs) All episodes. Benji's like, it's been an hour. The Australian has a new editor. Uh, Her name's Michelle Gunn, and it's particularly notable because it's the first woman in the history of the Australian to actually take on the editorial role. Um, previously she's been the weekend Australian editor, um, but she's taking over now. Um, and I particularly want to mention this, uh, because I think, and I'm going to make a call here that we can refer back to in future, that this is, this is an, uh, this is an occurrence of what is actually popularly known as the glass cliff. Now, what is that? You may ask. I'm asking. What's the glass cliff, Evie? So, you know about the glass ceiling, which is women breaking through into leadership roles in work? Well, there is also the glass cliff. Mm-hmm. So, the glass cliff is basically when women are put in leadership positions in order to be pushed off the cliff when the company goes broke. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> brutal. Um, so, the company goes broke and then they can blame it on the woman. Oh, so you're saying that the, the Australian's going to fold? Yes. And... They're going to be like, oh, is that bloody Michelle Gunn? Yes. Um, and, uh. and it's not even just a question of the Australian folding. It could be that perhaps they're going, she's going to take a different editorial stance. Perhaps, perhaps she might be pro-acknowledging climate change exists. Hmm. Perhaps she might hmm. be more, you know, progressive in her politics. Perhaps she might change a lot of things within the company that are ostensibly quite good. But, but it's too late? It's too late. And so the company will fail and they can blame it on her. So it, 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 to a degree, it may not just be that she's a woman. She may actually have a lot of good ideas. I can't back this up. I don't know her at yeah, all. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know anything about her political beliefs, so I can't. Yeah, really- she's the editor of The Australian, so probably not. Yeah. Yeah. 
and she started it as a cadet journalist, so it's quite likely mm. that she's actually bad. But <laughs> oh, so she's been at the Australian for a long time. Yes. Yep. Throw her in a pit. Mm. <laughs> a glass pit. <laughs> Get in the glass bin. That's where all the... A glass, glass bin. <laughs> but yeah. a long walk off a glass pier. I'm definitely going to call it here. She is going to walk straight into the glass pier. <laughs> I think this is actually something you see uh, in politics as well. I mean, you've got a government like the one we have now, or the one that is frigging all over the world right now, driving full speed towards a cliff, but you know when shit gets super, super dire... And they go, they go, fuck, we're out. Uh, we'll leave it up to the bloody environmental t- lefty types to sort this mess out. Um, they'll go, oh, why didn't you sort that whole mess out that we left you with? Uh, guess, guess all that environmental shit didn't work after all. And then we can say, yeah. I wonder as well if, like, you know, the, the glass cliff phenomenon, like, definitely in terms of, like, you know, being able to point blame at women in positions of power to undermine any future positions of power they might hold. But also of just the idea of like ca- capital. Capital works by filling holes, and if there's no longer a place for capital to capital to flow, I wonder how much of it is just sort of like, oh fuck it, yeah, give them a go. We can now do the minimum thing required of us by where the culture of our society is at, because it's going to fold anyway. So like the the the, mm. the loosening of the bonds there well, are a sign of the fact that it's already failing. It's also once it starts to collapse, be it a, a company or a country or an economy, you've got as much as you can get. Fuck off. Uh, you've, you've got yours. Get out. Leave it to the people who wanted to run it, but you've already stripped it bare. I got actions. I got actions. Um, if you are in any way concerned about higher education, do a social media search for NTEU Fightback. Fightback is one word. We'll have links in the show notes and whatnot, but um, really good resource uh, for all the different problems with the NTEU at the moment and how to fix them. There is hope with this fight, and by joining together, getting involved, you can 100% help us out. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Not Good Enough. If you want to get in touch with us, we are Not Good Pod on all the socials, and the email address is notgoodpod at protonmail.com. Please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear what you think. Also, tell your friends about us. If you like the podcast, maybe they'll like it as well. Or maybe your friends don't have anything in common with you. <laughs> <laughs> Not Good Enough was recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging, and point out that sovereignty was never ceded.